of chapter 8, a peridea, a now concerning, which Paul uses again to show that he's in a, into a different subject matter. And so you'll see that right away. But let me pray for us as we get started here. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, that we can gather together on Sunday and uh, study your word and sit under the means of grace and learn more about you, give you praise, honor, and glory for who you are and for what you've done for us through your Son. And Lord, we ask that you would help us understand your word and that we would apply it to our lives, that we would live holy and righteous lives before you. And uh, also, Lord, that we would... um, convicted in the heart to proclaim your gospel to the lost and the dying, um, those out in the world who have never heard your uh, glorious message. And so we ask that you would do that through us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In this chapter, we're going to see that Paul is going to be explaining what true knowledge is. And what's interesting in chapter 8 is the issue is one of the heart in the sense that the Corinthians... They certainly have knowledge, those who Paul is going after, but their knowledge is faulty in that it doesn't allow them to protect their fellow brothers and sisters who don't have the same knowledge. And so in that sense, their knowledge is deficient. And so Paul is addressing the attitude of the heart of the Corinthians to say, if you truly had knowledge, in the sense that if you really had your doctrine right, you wouldn't be acting the way you're acting. That is, using your privilege and your freedom in Christ to cause a fellow brother or sister who's weaker in their faith to stumble. That's what you're going to be seeing in this whole section. Now, the situation in 1 Corinthians 8 is this. First of all, the Corinthians were boasting in Sophia. Remember, that's wisdom, logos, which is logic, and gnosis, which is knowledge. And these three were supreme indicators in their opinion of being spiritual. There's also another term I'd like to throw out at you, you'll see here, is exousia, which has to do with authority. And what the Corinthians believed is that because they knew that idols were nothing, and therefore they could eat anything they wanted to, whether it was meat sacrificed to an idol or not, because they knew the idol didn't represent a true God, that they were free to do it even in the temple, even if brothers and sisters would look on. And they call that their exousia, their authority. The problem is that authority ends up making the weaker brothers and sisters stumble who don't realize an idol is nothing. That's the issue. So the Corinthians, they believe that this gnosis built them up so that they had the right to eat anything, including, again, food sacrificed to idols. What Paul is going to lay out is it's not just gnosis that builds you up, it's actually love. Because if you have your doctrine right you're going to end up loving your brothers and sisters. And again, that doesn't mean we compromise truth. It's just that truth leads you to love. That's the idea. In their boasting of gnosis and their exercising of the rights to eat, they cause weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. And finally, what Paul is going to do is he's going to correct the situation by explaining that true gnosis, that is knowledge, leads to loving others. What's interesting is in 1 Corinthians 8, when, we, when, we get, when we're in this passage or in this section, Paul is explaining ultimately that you shouldn't do, that is, you shouldn't exercise your rights and authority by eating meat that has been sacrificed to the idols because it hurts your brothers and sisters that are weaker. When you get to chapter 10, Paul is going to abolish the act altogether. And so the question in your mind arises, well, why doesn't he just abolish it right away in 1 Corinthians 8? The reason why is he's dealing with an attitude. The attitude of the Corinthians here that must be changed is the attitude that they can use their gnosis 
to cause a weaker brother to stumble, brother or sister to stumble. That's the idea, okay? So, again, the issue is they don't know as they ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning, of course, that's Perry Day, as we've alluded to earlier, a new section here. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Again, that's this gnosis that they were bragging in. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now notice this term edifies. Again, it comes from the idea of um, oikos, by the way, is a house. It's a noun. Well, oikodomeo is a verb meaning build up, build up like a house. And so again, the idea was that the Corinthians had is that if they had this spiritual knowledge that they knew an idol was nothing, that was supreme in everything because they were going to exercise their freedom. And if you exercise your freedom, your authority, your freedom in the Lord, you are therefore being built up. And so what you do is you take your weaker brothers and sisters who don't know an idol is nothing, and you grab them and you pull them by the shirt collar, so to speak, and you say, you eat the food that's also sacrificed, and that will build you up. So it's not necessarily that these people had bad intentions. It just ends up making their weaker brothers and sisters stumble. So what Paul has to do is he has to say, no, love actually is what is going to build up. And so that's what he's going to have to Now, let me just show you in 1 Corinthians 10.23, you're going to see this term build up again, oikodomeo. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So he's attacking them in their false notion that just because they know they have freedom, that that's what's building them up in their faith. Okay? What would actually build them up in their faith is if their doctrine led them to love their brothers and sisters. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and then love our neighbor as ourself. And so they're negating the second of the great commandments, aren't they? And so they're missing it. They're missing the boat. Again, they don't know as they ought to know. Now I want to focus in on this idea that they suppose that they know, right? They suppose that they have knowledge, but the idea is that they really don't. And that's the importance of this term supposes and notice that it goes on to say that they suppose that they, they know anything, but he has not yet known as he ought to know. This is a very interesting phrase. I'm going to show you in the Greek that the ought to know is literally not yet he has known just as he must know. Or better English, I guess, it would be he has not yet known as he must know. Kathos is just as and day. Remember, that's the divine necessity. It's must. And typically it's the divine necessity that something will happen that God has predicted. But here... It's the idea that believers must know differently. And so, again, the idea here is that Paul is not denigrating knowledge. And so, friends, don't let anybody denigrate knowledge of the Scriptures, knowledge of God, by using this passage. That's not the intent that Paul has. Rather, he is explaining what true knowledge is. True knowledge leads to loving brothers and sisters and not tempting them to stumble. That's the point. Okay. Again, not a repudiation of knowledge. It's just, hey, let's qualify what real knowledge is. That's what Paul is getting at. Um, another phrase I want to talk to you about, there's some de- debate as to how to interpret this, that but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, he thinks that, that, that this actually isn't in the English. As we see it in English, it's not actually in the Greek. It's a, there's a textual issue. However, I disagree with him. I've looked at my textual apparatus in my Greek text, And the majority of the scholars believe that just as you read it here, that's how it actually is in the Greek. Okay? Now, why am I saying that? Well, this is, this is hard to understand 
as it sits, because listen to what it says. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. How does that relate to the Corinthians not having the knowledge that they should? It doesn't seem to follow, does it? And that's why Fee modifies it. However, let me just take a stab at this. The idea of being known by him, I think, has to do with the foreknowledge that God has for his people. We saw the idea, remember, when we studied First Peter in chapter 1, it had to do with that pro-gnosco. Uh, gnos, remember, we're talking about gnosis, knowledge. Pro, before, gnosco is forehand knowledge, knowing the people of God beforehand. And so the idea is, is that God knows or has foreordained his elect before the foundation of the world to bestow his covenant love upon them. And because of that, the outcome is that they love God. But it's so entwined in both Jewish, you know, I'm saying the Old Testament, and in the New Testament doctrine, that if you love God, what must you necessarily do? You must necessarily love your brothers and your sisters as well. And so the idea is you have this adversative which says, but if anyone loves God, and therefore the evidence of their loving God is they love their brothers and sisters, well, then that's evidence that they're, in fact, those who are foreknown by God. I think that's how I would understand it. Does that, does that make sense? That's the only way I can make sense of it. And I'll just leave it in our comments and questions when we get to that. If you guys have anything revolutionary to throw onto this, um, feel free. I had a captain who used to say that after every briefing. He says, if you have anything revolutionary to add, I'd like to hear it now, right? So you guys feel free. But that's how I would understand that, that difficult part of the passage. Okay, now, Paul returns to their letter. So remember, he's addressing the contentions that the Corinthians are making. And to a certain degree, he agrees with them, but he always qualifies. In other words, the Corinthians have a certain amount of what they're saying is true. It's just not completely true in the way they're handling it. That is, they're using their knowledge to abuse younger brothers and sisters, or weaker brothers and sisters, I should say. First uh, Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Therefore, he says, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Now, here's a protasis, okay? It's an if-then. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and then he acknowledges, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, here's the apotasis. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, I want to talk, first of all, about this idea that there is no such thing as an idol, the idea then is Paul is acknowledging there really is no such thing objectively as an idol. An idol doesn't exist in the sense that there are really no gods that stand behind these objects. He's acknowledging that, and that much the Corinthians have right. And so the reason why that's important is this section sets up verse 7 that we're going to be coming to where he says, not all men have this knowledge. Okay, So the issue is, friends, the weaker brothers and sisters, they don't know that. To them, they don't know that an idol is nothing. They're still weak in their faith. And so to them, subjectively, there really is power to the idol. Why? Because they actually believe it represents perhaps a god or a spirit or something to that effect. And so that's the issue. So objectively, is it true that an idol is, not, is anything? There's actually a god behind it? No. Subjectively, yes, it's true because the weaker brothers and sisters have fallen for it. And, and to me, friends, that's the importance of this, uh, of this phrase here where it says, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. By the way, gods and lords is used in the Greek papyri and different uh, manuscripts that we have. The gods typically represent the pantheon of both the, the Greco-Roman gods, whereas the lords would represent 
the gods within the mystery cults. Okay, so that's probably what Paul is referring to. And so what I want you to see here is this underlying portion. What Paul is acknowledging is that, yes, to those who actually believe these idols represent gods, then they're true. Then they actually exist as God and Lord. So in other words, Paul is not denying reality that there are actually people who believe this stuff. That's the underlying portion. That's the importance of it. So this section, again, anticipates the qualification when we get to chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, the idea that the idols are not gods, but they are access to demons. Okay, and that, friends, is why when we get to chapter 10, Paul is going to abolish the notion that you can go sit in the temple and become a partaker in these uh, meals that are sacrificed to idols altogether. But again, right now he's dealing with the attitudes that the Corinthians have, namely that they should have love for their brothers and sisters, and in fact, they don't know as they should. So again, because people that are weak in their faith, they believe that the gods and the lords, that is the idols, are something, they end up being a conduit to actually worship the demons. And that's why he ends up abolishing it altogether uh, later on. Verses 4 through 6 We'll just continue on in a few thoughts. I want to show you that there's some Trinitarian language that we don't want to um, let escape, so to speak. Notice it says one God, okay? So clearly we have one God, but we have the Father, and the Father is from whom are all things. And it's interesting, this is a a preposition of source. It's literally ek who. This uh, who here is a pronoun, it's a genitive pronoun, from whom. So ek is from and whom. So that means the Father is the source in which all things come from. But when you come down to Jesus Christ, there's this distinction that he is another person within this Godhead because now he is the one by whom are all things. And here, it's dia-u. And when you see dia, which is a preposition for through, sometimes you can... In fact, if I was to translate it, I'd probably say through whom are all things. Typically, that's how I would translate it, but by is fine. The point is, is he is the means or the mediator of all things. So so it's the idea that God the Father is the architect and Jesus Christ, as it were, well, Jesus is an architect too, but it's the idea that he's the under-architect and he's the one who actually created all things, okay? And so you see the work, this is actually a functional subordination, they called within the Trinity. The Son doing things by subordinating himself to the Father. The Father is the source of the plan. Jesus is the one, in the sense, who carries it out. He is the means by which the world was created. So again, one God, but we have, at least in this passage, two members of the Trinity. So a great Trinitarian passage that we can use to prove that, in fact, we have one God in three persons. Now, again, the issue is not all men know that idols are nothing. Verses 7 through 9, Paul continues. He says, however... Not all men have this knowledge. That is that the idol really doesn't, uh, there is no God actually behind it. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And, of course, down here is the real issue, isn't it? Because, again, they use their knowledge to their freedom to allow another weaker brother to stumble. Notice where it says, as if it were sacrificed to an idol. It's literally better rendered, they eat as if it were idol food. And it's in the present tense. So why is that important? Well, the lack of the past tense, notice it says up here, sacrificed. Well, this is actually an adjective. 
And that adjective, you could also render it as idle food. So the point is, it's not happening in the past. It actually indicates that it is very likely that the Corinthians were eating the food in the temple, not in the marketplace sometime later. So here's the issue. A lot of people believe when they read this passage that what was going on is the Corinthians were, there was food that was sacrificed to these demons, and that food then would be later sold in a marketplace. And the idea would be then that these people would buy that food, knowing full well where it was sacrificed, but they knew it didn't represent an idol because they knew an idol was nothing, and then they would eat. And then when they would eat, their weaker brother and sister would see it, and then they would stumble because they thought an idol was something. That's probably not the situation because, again, it's not past tense sacrificed. It's that they're currently eating, as it were, idol food. Why? Because they're, still, they're actually in the temple when they're eating it. Okay? So we have to get our minds, and that's what I always used to believe when I would read Corinthians, is that these people were taking the food from the marketplace and taking it to their home. More than likely, the language here is that, no, they were eating it in the temple. Okay, um, Keith, do you have something on there? Do you, what, hold on, let's just get it. Oh, and by the way, let's typically hold it till afterwards, but I, you probably have something because you've been there, I bet. Well, what was happening here, there's both things could happen. Yeah. They had... Feasts within the temples that occurred on the temple property yep. that were part of the food that people brought to the priests and it was consumed there. Yep. And typically that would be followed by an orgy or something else that was consistent with the entire worship there. Sure. And they also would, that was the funding mechanism of the temple where the people would bring the sacrifices in, they'd keep a part of it in the temple, mm, and they'd yeah. take the rest of it and go sell it in the market and the money that was raised would then fund the table right. the temple. So, so, they were so both, both hap- happened. Yep. They both happened, but he's only talking about a, one of those two. Exactly. And that's the whole point is um, the language that we're seeing here points to the fact that it was the former, the idea that it's actually going on in the temple. So, I, again, I think that that's really a huge issue because, again, it's not that the meat was in the home later on and the idea that you have to know whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not. The idea was is that these people were actually in the temple partaking in the food sacrificed to idols. And so that's a huge no-no because at the end of the day, we partake of one uh, supper with our Lord Jesus Christ. How dare we be become partakers with food to idols and partakers to the table of idols and, and demons, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10. So again, not all men know that these idols are nothing. That's the big problem. In verses 8 through 9, he says, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Um, it's interesting, this idea of food here, because the food is really a liken to circumcision. Remember what we were talked about regarding the law and what aspects of the law have actually been nullified. In, in one sense, the whole law has been fulfilled by Christ and it's been done away with. But in another sense, when we look at it, the moral aspects of the law are always with us. And the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law have been jettisoned and they're never to come back. Okay? Well, the food laws, of course, would be part of that. And so what Paul says of the food here is what actually he says elsewhere of circumcision. So, for instance, let me just show you a passage in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that we studied. Remember when Paul said circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God? If you inserted food in there, Um, Eating food is nothing and not eating food is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. They're synonymous. It's the same thing, okay? Because our approaching God to be ceremonially clean or to have right standing before him 
in no way depends upon us being kosher or keeping the food laws. That's been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we are ceremonially clean. We are holy in him, and therefore we can approach the throne of grace. Again, Paul, again, is agreeing with their slogan. So, again, he's, this is a slogan more than likely that he's addressing. Yes, food will not commend us to God, and we are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do. Okay, so in other words, he's agreeing. Yes, you're right on that account, you Corinthians who are writing a letter. But where you fall down is here. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Why? Because they don't know an idol is nothing. That's the problem. And we can't take our knowledge and use it to allow abuse to befall a weaker brother and sister. So again, Paul is agreeing with their slogan in the letter, but qualifies it. The Corinthian authority, again, that's exousia, supposedly came from their gnosis, knowledge, right? Paul reminds them they cannot use their gnosis and liberty to cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. And this is why he's going to get in, when we get into chapter 9, verses 1 through 23, remember in that section he talks about becoming all things to all people? so that by all possible means some will be saved. And so to the Jews he became like a Jew to win those um, who are under the law. And to those who are not under the law he became as one who is not under the law, though he is still under the law of Christ, so that he can win those who are not under the law. The point being is Paul became all things to all people so that by all means some would be saved. What he's saying there is that he eliminated any offense other than the gospel. Okay, Not because he knew that, um, in other words, circumcision was something, but he eliminated any offense so that when we, he proclaimed the gospel, the idea that he wasn't circumcised wouldn't prevent him from getting a hearing. Okay, So the gospel itself then is the stumbling block that Paul puts forward. However, if somebody says that circumcision is demanded for salvation, then Paul will fight you, and rightfully so, because that's a salvific and a gospel issue. Okay, But when he brings the message forward, he eliminates any offense within himself until the gospel goes out and the gospel becomes the offense. And he lets people fall or rise upon the stone of the gospel, as it were. That's the idea. Okay, um, oh, I want to show you something. Notice the but, again, adversative. He says, but, in other words, I agree with you. Yeah, food isn't anything. What's the difference? But, adversative, I'm taking issue with you here. Take care that this liberty, that term liberty is exousia. And again, that's a key word because the Corinthians are boasting and we have exousia, we have authority. Why? Because we know that an idol is nothing. And these poor slobs who don't know that, who are fellow Christians, we're going to grab them by their collars and we're going to bring them into the temples and we're going to say, by golly, if you eat, you're going to be better off. You'll have authority, gnosis, and wisdom and all these things like we will. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're going to cause them to stumble And it's actually a hurtful and a hateful thing that you're actually doing. In fact, it shows that you don't know as you ought to know. That's the whole point. Okay, so the weaker brother sees and stumbles. And uh, verse 10, it says, For if someone sees, again, that's the big issue. Um, They're seeing the stronger brothers and sisters actually in the temple. And so it's causing them to stumble. So if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Dining in, in an idol's temple, this indicates, friends, that they're in, there and in 10, 1 through 22, the issue was one where those who claimed gnosis were partaking in temple feasts, and then again the weaker brother and sister saw them and sinned because they could not truly believe an idol was nothing. Again, that's the issue. Let me um, talk about, oops, let me back up here. Something that I think may be important in this whole discussion 
Notice where it says, if he is weak, he might be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. What's interesting is this idea of weakness we're going to see again in verse 13. And it could be an indication that this person is not regenerate. However, there's other evidence that the person is regenerate. For instance, they're one who Christ died for. But notice the idea of being strengthened, their conscience, which is weak, is weak in one sense, but it's strengthened in another sense. That is to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. In other words, it's strengthened in the sense that they're going to be doing wrong. And the point that I'm wrestling with here, when we get to verse 13, and it talks about the possible destruction of these weak individuals, Is it the fact that they're actually believers and they can actually lose their salvation? Or is it the fact that they're never, they were never believers to begin with and they're just heading toward perdition? Or is this a warning, a generic warning that goes out to all believers that is never actualized? In other words, there's never actually a believer that will succumb to this, but Paul uses it as a warning to keep people. It's like the idea of, again, the warning that says, do not go past this point and it's in an elevator shaft, right? And so it's a real warning, and if you go down that elevator shaft, you'll perish. But because of the warning sign there, no one actually ever does it. You actually never lose a single person down the elevator shaft, but the possibility's there. That's, I think, the third option. We'll wrestle with that. But I just want you to see that even in verse 10, it kind of plays into our issue that we'll talk about in verse 13. So now, freedom can ruin another Verses 11 through 13, it says, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Right there, that's an indication, I think, that they're a believer. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now let's play with this issue a little bit. Um, First of all, I want to point out this term, Ruined. The idea of ruin comes from apolumi. And here it's actually a present passive, so it just has a different ending, apoluitai. And it says um, the idea of it is the, the present tense on it indicates that they are already experiencing ruin. Okay, why? Because they're in a weakened condition. Um, and so therefore when they see what these stronger brothers and sisters are doing, they're already in the state of destruction or corruption or ruin. Now, to me, that could be an indication that they're not a believer. However, it's difficult because they're called a brother, and they're also called one who, for whose sake Christ died. Okay, so again, theologically, it's difficult to say that this is not a believer. The, um, another possibility is that apoluitai, or apolumi is the lexical form, it can also mean something short of eternal destruction. Okay, in other words... Um, ruination that isn't necessarily one that leads to damnation. Problem with that is apolumi often means eternal destruction, okay? And so I'm, I'm just wrestling with this. And again, if anybody has something revolutionary, let me know. But another thing is this term, uh, present tense, where it says, asthenon, the present act of parsable, indicating a present state and continuation of weakness, one who is continually weak. Okay, so do you see where it's uh, underlined? He who is weak. Again, this whole participle indicates that they are continuously weak, that they have never left that weakened state. So does that indicate then that they're an unbeliever? Again, possibly, but it's difficult with the idea of them being a brother and those um, who Christ died for. 
Now, there's a possibility, uh, one scholar, uh, Wayne Grudem, in a commentary that he made, uh, talks about the idea that possibly this language of being a brother and being those who Christ died for could be this idea of um, Christian charity where you see a brother or sister or a, let's just say a gal or a guy in the church and you give them the benefit of the doubt as it were. In other words, the Corinthians don't know. And so the language is actually referring to here being the fact that they're continuously weak. They're actually an unbeliever. But when it says the reference to the brother and the fact that Christ died for them, that's the outward appearance. That's all we know. We assume that to be the case. That's another possibility. The other possibility is that this really is a warning that applies. And truly, these weakened brothers could end up heading towards damnation. And by God's grace and through the means of the word, that actually never happens. Because we know in the greater part of Scripture, John 10, 28 through 29, my sheep hear my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So we know in the totality of Scripture that the elect are never lost. Okay? And so perhaps God uses this means of the word as a warning so that it never, in fact, occurs. Are you, are you following me? That would be the third option. So with that, um, again, if anybody has any revolutionary uh, things to add to that, I'll, I'll take them. But that's how we have to wrestle with it, in my opinion. Okay, now let me give you some application. I think Gordon Fee does such a great job. He says it far better than I could. Let me read you what he says on this passage. Number one, he has four points. Number one, he says the issue is not that of offending someone in the church, it has to do with conduct that another would emulate. Indeed, in this case, apparently, is being urged to emulate to his or own hurt. Again, the issue is the stronger brothers and sisters who knew that the idols were nothing, they're actually wanting to grab, so to speak, the weaker brothers by the shirt and grab them and pull them into the temple and say, you do this and you'll be built up. Well, all the while, they're actually, wow, they're back to demonology again. They're back to serving the demons. That's what's really going on. So again, but what Fee's point is, this isn't about offending someone. This isn't about you engaged in Christian liberty and someone who is a, a Pharisaic uh, type wants to put the kibosh in all your fun. I don't think that that's the, the point. The point is it's actually causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble. Number two, usually this principle is invoked in more peripheral matters of behavior, but that too is not the case here. While it is true, he says that in verse 13, Paul broadens the scope considerably the specific issue is something that he will eventually forbid altogether. I was alluding to that fact earlier. When we get to chapter 10, nobody is to go to the idol or the temples and become partakers in those meals that are sacrificed to idols. Why? Because you're becoming a partaker of the meal um, and the assembly of the demons rather than being a partaker with the Lord and his supper. So that, that seems to be the issue. He says, Nonetheless, he says, the greater issues for him in this section are the adnitudinal ones. They do, not, they do need careful hearing. People arguing for behavior on the basis of knowledge and asserting their authority slash freedom to the detriment of others. I think that's important uh, that we all keep in mind, yeah, we all have knowledge, we know doctrine, but is our doctrine being used uh, to build up the body or is it being used to cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble? Again, if we know as we ought to know, we'll do it to build up the, the brethren. What would seem to be an illegitimate use of the principle, even in the broader terms of verse 13, is for those who feel offended to try to force all others to conform to their own idiosyncrasies of behavior. 
Paul makes it quite clear in Romans 14 that on matters of indifference, people within a given community should learn to live together in harmony with no group demanding their own behavior of the others. Let me um, explain in my own life where this happened. I um, And I, I learned two things in this. I was um, part of a Bible study. My wife and I, um, it was called Community Bible Study, and we had to have at the end of the year a meal that we would put on where all of the people in our study would come. And so we had it at Buka's. Um, the one in Eden Prairie. And what happened was, is we didn't know any better. We, we thought, well, we'll order wine and we'll have milk and we'll have all these things. Well, there was a gal that came and she actually had a problem with alcohol. Well, what happened was, is we learned that, hey, you know what? We better be more careful. We certainly don't want to cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. But what happened in the months later is we were shunned because we drank alcohol. So the point is, is we were insensitive in one, in one respect that we weren't careful. We didn't even think. It didn't dawn on us, but we weren't careful to not put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister. But then she became legalistic and said, you know what, they're an inferior Christian because they drink wine. And so she was wrong as well. There's a, the notion of Christian liberty, friends. And so we can't take what's being said by Paul here and become a Pharisee and say, well, if there's anything that may cause a brother and sister to stumble, you can never do it, even in private. And if you do, you're, you're an inferior Christian. That's not what Paul is saying either. Again, I think a great principle is mutual submission. We submit to one another in the body, not causing the weaker brothers and sisters to stumble, but also not being um, Pharisees in the sense that we're legalistic and not allowing uh, true freedoms to be enjoyed by brothers and sisters. Number four, the real concern of the passage needs a regular hearing in the church. Personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. This church has always been heavy on doctrine, and by God's grace it will always continue to do so. Let's just always remember that our doctrine is designed to build and to edify and to teach the people of God, to lift them up, and never used as a club that we may do damage or harm to them. you see what I'm saying? And again, I don't know what that looks like per se, but I think sometimes we do. In our own daily lives, we know when we're trying to just win the argument uh, versus when we're trying to build up a brother and sister. And so let's just keep these things in mind. With that, I'll take any comments and questions and anything revolutionary you may have to add. How does that relate to... Uh the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. In in um, no, when you gave point number three up there, and yeah. I, I see that I've 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 seen that action. Actually, I've been guilty of that a few times. Hmm. You know, where you try to win the argument or something like this. Well, I'm just more superior to you, or well, I go to sanctify a church. Well, ain't my church? You know, you know things of that nature. Sure. And. In showing that you know you you care for the weaker brother, sometimes you have to step back in a little humility, yeah. which some of us are too built up and too strong to step back from. Mm-hmm. So, in the spirit of the law, I think that's what helps you overcome that pharisaical bam letter sure. of law. Yeah. So, how does, does does can that relate in that way? Yeah. Again, I, I don't. I'm just trying to think about this. It's kind of got me flat-footed. I. I would say that it's never wrong to explain the scriptures as they what, what they truly mean. In other words, explaining the letter of the law, what does it actually mean? But perhaps it's the way we use it 
um, maybe that's what you're referring to as the, um, the, the passage that comes to my mind is uh, Romans 2:28 through 29, but that has nothing to do with our subject here. That is talking not about the written word, but that which is in fact the spirit of the matter, uh, that talking about one who is truly a Jew. Um, I would have to think about it, Larry. I wouldn't want to give you an answer just off the top of my head on that one. I'll have to think about it and see how I would... Uh, maybe somebody else has something on that. Well, I, just, uh, I had a different question. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll come back to you on that. Let me let me think about it. I mean, yeah. The warning that we're talking about, the elevator shaft analogy? Yeah. yeah. From God's perspective, those who are elect never go in. Exactly. That's right. From our perspective, we see people wander up. Some fall in and some don't. And the apostate fall in yeah. because they're apostate. They don't always fall in the same elevator shaft but they right. do fall into elevator shafts. Right. And as we see them go over the edge, we know they're apostate. Yeah. And so the, the warning is not just effective, but the warning serves for us to judge what's happening in the people that go up yeah. to that elevator shaft. Yeah, well so when it says, you know, and I would say that it's probably the case here because in Corinthians and earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, he says when I act, but actually, when I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, he's talking about a brother as well. It's a mm-hmm. so-called brother because in their, in their midst, there were people that were claiming to be Christians and acting unchristian, sure, and they were really therefore were. a so-called brother. Sure. And for, for real apostates, we don't see from our side of things what an apostate looks like. We think we would, but... God does, because we think that we see fruit, maybe. But when it says in Second uh, Peter, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this is he enslaved. For if after they have escaped from the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, that looks like salvation to me. Yeah, yeah. If after they have escaped from... And then yeah. it says... They are again entangled in them and are overcome. Right. The last state has become worse than the first. It's an apostate, so, yeah. So from our perspective, he fell down the shaft. Right, that's right, yeah. So the shaft, those warnings are a way for us to look and judge the actions of those around us, especially in the church, to see if that indeed is, if their faith is true. That's a very good implication, yeah. Very, very well said. Yeah, I guess um, the issue I was dealing with is, is it possible that the elect actually lose their salvation? No. But you're right, that's a very valid implication that no, there are people actually fall down the shaft, it's just that they're apostate in the reprobate all along. So absolutely. Yeah. It's very difficult, excuse me, it's very difficult to find anything that's revolutionary based on the way you teach. Well, no. It's, it's hard to contradict anything that you're teaching us. But when you were talking, uh, and I'm not contradicting anything, I'm just confirming and sure. just citing another scripture that says the same thing. Sure. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Mm. Then there's in First uh, John uh, 4, 7. Beloved, let us love God. Let us love one another, for love is from God, mm-hmm. and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Right, but well then, said. my favorite uh, scripture relating to that also is First John five, uh, one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Yeah, well said. Yeah, so they can't be divorced. This love of God and love of brother and sister—they're intricately, um, they're they're. they're 
intrinsically tied together. They can't be, yeah, so well said. Yeah, thanks for adding those passages. Those are really good. Thank you. I, as you were uh, giving the uh, teaching there, I could not help but go back to Acts, the Jerusalem Council, mm. the Acts 15, yeah. when he talks about abstaining from sacrifice idols and using this this teaching, I have a feeling that this is kind of what they meant. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, in fact, that's what we're going to see when we get to 1 Corinthians 10. Because, again, the issue is um, what they don't realize, the, the those who are strong in their faith in Corinth, is that they're actually partaking, when they're in this meal, they're actually partaking in fellowship with the demons. And so they don't realize that behind these idols there stands this worship of demons and so Paul's question is, how can you be partaking of the Lord's Supper and have fellowship with him, and at the same time, you're having fellowship with those who are actually sacrificing and holding their dinner, their fellowship with demons? And so that's the whole point, and that's the point that's really being driven, I think, in Acts 15 as well, and that's why it's being prohibited. Because it's interesting, these gods and these idols, there is nothing really behind them other than the subjective reality that those who sacrifice to them give. But as they're doing that, demons are actually behind them, this host of heaven, this stoichia. And and so what happens then is why would any believer want to partake in their fellowship rather than the fellowship of the Lord? And so it's mutually exclusive. And so that's why it's being forbidden as well in Acts 15. So well said. That's exactly right. So then we again, we see consistency within the Scriptures. They're both saying the same thing. So great, great catch there, yeah. Astute. That's what Bob always said, yeah, astute. Yeah. So, oh, I'm sorry, Robert. Eric, uh, going back to the, um, the elevator analogy, yeah. in your estimation, would it be possible if, let's say, someone did fall into that elevator shaft and, and uh, let's say, a concerned um, you know, brother went up to the shaft and saw that um, he was just hanging on on the first floor right below and, and was able to grab a hold of, him and pull him out of the shaft, do you think that that could actually happen to actually restore him? Yeah, Robert, that's a great question. I don't know how far to push the um, elevator shaft analogy. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's good to think about. I just um, Let me just go back here. The idea here that I'm wrestling with is this apolumi, again, this is the present passive form of that, that seems to, in context, always refer, and Paul uses it especially for damnation, ruination, so there doesn't seem to be, um, let's just say it this way. With this passage itself, I can't, I don't know what that looks like. Um, do you see what I'm saying? It just seems like anybody who goes into the elevator shaft is lost. You know what I mean? And so this, the whole notion of this is a warning to keep you from the elevator shaft and to determine that those who went into the elevator shaft are, are lost. That's, I, think, I think that's all we can glean yeah, from, from it. From our side, we know that somebody has the, the God's, universal call that goes out to even the apostates and I would call that the eternally apostate or those who are pursuing apostatism as long as they're alive there exists the opportunity to repent so if you look down the elevator shaft and someone's hanging on it would be a good thing to try to reach (laughs) down and if he comes out he's repentant and we always extend the offer of the gospel to all who are are living because until they die, that offer and that that exists, and we don't know 
until we don't know until the end, and even then only God knows because it happens right. as something in the heart. But we know when they go down the elevator shaft, that's really bad. Yeah, that's what we know. That, that's right, and that's exactly what's being stated here. This is actually going. It seems to me you're going down the elevator shaft at this point. So that's all I'm pointing out. But you're right. Yeah, obviously, if there's breath in someone's uh, lungs, they can obviously repent and 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 trust the Lord. So uh, yeah, um, today is the day of salvation um, to the point of death and. Uh, Hebrews 9.27, it's after death that we have no more opportunities. Um, it's um, once for man to die and after that comes judgment. So, yeah. Rich, you, did you have something? or What if the guy gets on the elevator safely, but then the cable snaps? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's get back to it now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's All sorts of scenarios on that elevator. <laughs> you know, Right, right. That is revolutionary. Purgatory would be where it stops and you can't get out. <laughs> that would be the doctrine of purgatory, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody else on those things? Uh, we're going to be into First uh, Peter again up there. I'll be making a few statements just about... Um, I've talked to a lot of you this week, and I know there's been a lot of uh, pain and um, anguish over um, what's happened I'll be addressing some of those things. Where do we go from here? Um, and so I'll be talking a little bit about that with you. We're going to be calling for prayer next Sunday. Um, it just, it's the first day that we really have an opportunity. With uh, There's just a lot going on. And we're going to be spending time praying for Bob and praying for direction from the Lord and also praying uh, that we would be about his kingdom, his glory, and that we would represent his name well and all the things that we pursue and so that's going to be occurring next Sunday. Um, I think it's at 7, but we'll, um, I'll make sure I'm not telling you the wrong time with Carl. But um, So again, today we're going to be in First Peter. We'll just take the rest of the time now. Um, we'll just get into our fellowship here and have our coffee and drinks and so forth. But again, if any of you have any uh, concerns or questions or comments, feel free to call one of us or the elders, any of us. You know, I know a lot of you are still working through these things, and we love you, and we want to. Um, we always want to be there to talk with you and uh, especially through this this difficult time. So, again, feel free. My number's in the directory. Any of us um, will take your call. Um, the only reason I won't uh, pick up the phone at the time is because I'm in bed or Will has got me in a headlock, my little boy. So other than that, I'll, I'll get back to you. So blessings, my friends. We'll see you upstairs.